This episode describes violence in graphic detail. Listener discretion is advised. On September 29, 1987, Becky Simmons wrote a letter to her oldest daughter, Sheila. Becky's three oldest children were adults and had left home by then, and they were working in concert to convince Becky to leave their abusive father. In her letter, Becky mentioned that her third oldest child, her son Billy, had been working especially hard to convince his mother to leave. The 46-year-old Becky wrote, quote, Billy, I know worries over me, so I've been doing a lot of thinking of leaving your dad. I've been a prisoner long enough. Bill and I are trying to find a way. I just don't want to give your dad anything. He has mistreated us all long enough, so I feel no pity for him, and being alone is what he deserves. All this will take time, but I don't want to continue this life with Fatso, end quote. That Fatso moniker was the one Becky assigned to her husband in every letter she wrote to her family during the last years of her life. It is suspected that Ronald Gene Simmons began to realize that his once ironclad control of his family had started showing signs of fragility. His three oldest children were out of the house. His wife was standing up to him more. His fourth oldest, Loretta, was set to graduate from high school the following spring, and Loretta had made no effort to hide her desire to leave home at her first opportunity. Simmons refused to let his wife, his children, and grandchildren create a new life that did not include him. And Simmons was already in the planning stages to make sure none of them lived to see the new year. Presented by the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, you're listening to The Devil of Pope County, America's Worst Family Massacre. Mockingbird Hill sat on a low ridge that ran parallel to Broomfield Road, a paved county highway that cut through a section of Pope County that had few paved roads during the 1980s. The property was located in the area of Pleasant Valley, an unincorporated community north of Dover that had little else in proximity to it other than a church, a cemetery, a corner store, and a campground. On the property was a mobile home with five bedrooms, two of them underneath an extended roof. The family room, which included a fireplace, took up a large section of the house, so the kitchen, dining room, and bedrooms were relatively small. There was no indoor plumbing in the house, and no phone. During the four and a half years the family lived in Pope County, Simmons put his family to work to make alterations to the property and turn it into something that he wanted to live on. Drainage ditches were dug. A hole was carved out for the family outhouse. Barbed wire was put up, and Billy did most of the work building a shed. The working conditions were not ideal. It was extremely hot in the summer, 
and cold in the winter. During the summer months, the kids had to keep their eyes open for dangerous wildlife, including scorpions and venomous snakes. In the spring of 1984, Sheila, who was 20 by then, announced she was getting married. Her fiancé was 29-year-old Dennis McNulty. Dennis was from Camden, a small town in south-central Arkansas. The couple had met at the business school they had both attended a year or so earlier. Sheila's father was distraught over the news that his oldest daughter was soon going to be leaving home and would soon be starting her own family. Simmons, who openly resented Dennis, bounced back and forth from quiet depression to intense rage, which caused even more strife at home. Sheila's wedding took place that August in Camden. The wedding photo showed two sets of families posing in the same group photo. The only one not smiling was Ronald Gene Simmons. Including little Gene and Billy, three of Simmons's seven children had moved out of the house by the end of the summer of 1984. Little Gene got married, and he and his wife were expecting their first child. Billy finished high school, found a job, bought a pickup truck, and found a place to live. Simmons's fourth oldest child, Loretta, was forming her own exit plan. By the time she enrolled at Dover High School, she understood that education is what would afford her the opportunity to be on her own. She excelled academically every year while in high school. Loretta and her younger siblings were always excited when the school bus pulled up to their stop. For them, school was their respite from a damaged, depressing home. One of Loretta's closest friends in high school was a girl named Dana, who could be described as a lively, sweet-natured social butterfly. Dana, who has since left Dover, agreed to be interviewed for this podcast on the condition that she only be identified by her first name. Dana told me that she's never taken part in any interview about the Simmons slangs until now. Only recently has she been able to talk about it without crying. Loretta meant a lot to her. Dana still remembers the start of their blossoming friendship. I've never been great at math. I don't have that fact. But I remember seeing her. She had was uh, sitting across the room, and she had the most beautiful, long, straight, black hair. But the thing that I noticed the most about her was that she was very smart. And anytime, you know, there was a question asked how to do a problem or anything, she was always getting it right. And I just never could comprehend at that point much. And so I went over and introduced myself to her after class and we just kind of, you know, hit it off. But it was more so she was, you know, a very pretty young lady and she was just very smart and she seemed really nice. And we just kind of hit it off. Loretta had the beauty to go along with the brains. Her friends regularly told her she had the look of a fashion model. That seemed to have an effect. I do know that she was very interested in modeling when she grew up. She wanted to go to modeling school as soon as she graduated. Her plan was to, as soon as she graduated, she was getting out of there. She was praying that she could get a scholarship or praying that she was able to do something because she just was 100% ready was to get away from that. Home. 
by January 1985, long after his military career was over. Ronald Gene Simmons found a job during the week. It was at Woodline Motor Freight in Russellville. On weekends, he worked at the Sinclair Mini Mart across from a mobile home park on Main Street. The job at Woodline was mainly administrative. He worked in an office with about a dozen women. His boss was a woman. He was unhappy about that arrangement, but he kept the job because the income was better than just about anything else he could earn elsewhere. Later that year, Viola, Becky's sister who lived in Alabama, and Roger, Viola's husband, visited Becky and the children one Saturday. Simmons was at work when they arrived. That was when Becky opened up to them, confessing to everything, the spousal abuse, the dysfunction in her family, and so much more. Simmons came home at one point and greeted Roger and Viola, who commonly went by the name Vi. He wasn't overly friendly, he rarely was, but not as cold as normal either. In spite of Simmons's effort to convince his in-laws that his home was filled with warmth and affection, Vi and Roger took notice of the tension in the house. There was no love in the air, and the children would often recoil any time their father came near them. Years later, Vi and Roger told their story to THV11, the CBS News affiliate in Little Rock. And I couldn't believe the change in Jean and my sister, in the family, the family atmosphere. All the children were like little robots. None of them went near Jean, which I thought was very unusual because he always had one child next to him or on his lap, not one of them. They all just stood around or got out completely out of the way. They, they shied away when they got close and he'd reach out for one. And it, mm-hmm. it looked like sometimes he would reach out for one of the smaller children to maybe put on a show for us because it had been a long time since we'd seen them. But they, were, they would pull away, which Brian and I both thought was kind of strange. Simmons did not allow letters to come to the house, and he certainly did not allow anyone to mail letters from the house. So Becky used a back channel to write to her family, and she often wrote to Vi and Roger. After their visit in 1985, Becky started to open up to them more in her letters. Vi was astonished at how the marriage seemed to be unraveling, based on the tone of her sister's letters. I noticed a change in my sister's letters in the 70s, where before there was so much love there, her letters were filled with my gene. My gene made a strike. My gene did this. And then it got to where it was dad. And I realized maybe it was because of so many children they were having. And then uh, at the end, it was fatso. Billy, who had moved out of the house by this point, would serve as his mother's personal post office. He was happy to do it. He wanted his mother to correspond with those he knew would put the pressure on her to leave that nightmarish house on Mockingbird Hill. Becky was showing resolve, but her newfound strength still had limitations. Her husband had income and benefits, while Becky did not. If she gave all that up, she and her children would have nothing. She stayed for the children. By the spring of 1986, Sheila was expecting a child. Billy also was expecting his first child with his wife, Renata. Meanwhile, Simmons's infatuation with his co-worker, Kathy Kendrick, was in full swing. Kathy did not seem to mind it at first, but eventually Simmons's behavior made her feel uneasy while at work. 
Simmons went so far as to bring her flowers. She did nothing to give the impression that she was interested in him. Simmons only had eyes for Kathy. He was curt with most of the other women in the office, including his boss, Joyce Butts. In November 1986, a little more than a year before the slayings, Joyce reprimanded Simmons about his behavior toward Kathy. Simmons felt humiliated, whether because he was dressed down by a woman or it finally dawned on him that Kathy was not interested in him, or both, Simmons quit his job at Woodline. He told Joyce to take this job and shove it. He walked up to Kathy while she was on the phone with a customer, pressed down on the hold button, and told her, quote, I hope you're happy now, end quote. Then he stormed out of the building. He would not set foot in it again for another 13 months. It was reported that Simmons still longed for Kathy Kendrick, and began stalking her. He'd park outside her home in Russellville and sit and watch, hoping to catch a glimpse of her. Times were getting more difficult at Mockingbird Hill during the next several months due to Simmons's increasingly erratic behavior. In spite of the palpable fear inside the house, little Jean, who was reconciling with his estranged wife, decided to have the couple's three-year-old daughter, Barbara, spend time at his parents' house whenever he had custody of her. He lived in a bachelor pad with roommates, which was not the appropriate living situation for a three-year-old girl. Little Jean knew his mother took great care of Barbara, and his younger siblings loved her. In a letter to her son, Billy, Becky described Barbara as a sweet, lovable, polite little girl. She also said Barbara always kept her and her children laughing. She brought light into a dark home, and that's why Becky, as well as little Jean, wanted Barbara at the house. Barbara would only be staying there for a short time until little Jean and his ex-wife, turned fiancé, had enough money to find another place. The pair lived in separate cities, but they planned to reunite and remarry in February of 1988. During the weeks leading up to the massacre, Simmons rarely left his room, except when it was time to go work a shift at the Minimart. He would lock the door from the inside when he entered, and would lock it from the outside when he exited. Meanwhile, the older children, Sheila, little Jean, and Billy, were becoming a solid unit. They were working together, to convince their mother to leave their father. Renata, Billy's wife, also was involved in those conversations. It seemed their determination was finally having an effect. Becky seemed to be preparing herself mentally to leave her husband after the holiday season. She knew the upcoming Christmas would be the last one she'd share with the so-called Fatso. On December 11, 1987, Simmons renewed his safe deposit box at a bank in Russellville. One week later, Simmons picked up his last paycheck at the Minimart. His next shift was scheduled to begin in an hour, but he decided not to come in. Simmons chose to quit. December 22, 1987 was a Tuesday. 
It was the last school day before Christmas and the new year. The last day of school before a long break is all about waiting it out, fewer lessons, more downtime. Students at the Dover School District were excited for the holiday and the accompanying vacation. Loretta Simmons was not among those who were excited. The prospect of staying at home for two weeks was not something she relished. Her summer break earlier that year was extremely difficult for her. Vi and Roger O. Shields reflected on what Loretta went through during that summer. They were not allowed to go out or do anything cooped up, a 16-year-old, for three months, not to leave that hill except maybe to go with her mama to the laundromat. Can you imagine spending the entire summer between your junior and senior year in high school on the top of a foothill in the Ozarks, not being able to say hi to anybody except your mom and the kids that are in there? By the time Christmas break rolled around, Loretta was 17 years old and already aching to begin a new life away from Mockingbird Hill. But her home life wasn't all bad. She played the role of a co-mother to her younger siblings and her three-year-old niece, Barbara. Her younger sisters were Marianne, who was 11, and Rebecca Lynn, who was 8. Her younger brother, Eddie, was 14. But there was something else about this Christmas break that lifted Loretta's spirits. Family members who she and the kids did not see as often were heading into town and staying at the family house. Loretta had bonded in a big way with Billy's wife, Renata, so she was especially looking forward to hanging with her. Loretta had a soft spot for kids, and she was ready to spoil Sheila's two children, seven-year-old Sylvia and one-year-old Michael, as well as Billy's son, one-year-old Trey. All of them were arriving in four days, the day after Christmas. Little Jean was already at the house. He'd arrived at Mockingbird Hill the previous night. So on this afternoon, Loretta, Eddie... Marianne and Rebecca Lynn got off the bus and walked up the red clay driveway that cut between two rows of large oak trees. Their home was at the top of the ridge. Loretta led the way, like she always did with her younger siblings. As the kids headed up the ridge, they expected to see their mother first, then Barbara, then little Jean. They assumed their dad was alone drinking in his bedroom with the door locked. The house was remote. No neighbor was within sight of it. There are no witnesses to what happened next. It's been assumed by investigators that Ronald Gene Simmons came out of the house to greet the children after they came off the school bus and as they strolled up that hill. And knowing Loretta, she was probably suspicious right away. It was not like her father to come out of his bedroom when they got home, let alone meet them outside. And by this time, Simmons had openly resented Loretta, who was starting to show more and more signs of defiance. However it happened, Simmons convinced the younger children to stay outside, telling them that he'd come out and get them one at a time. He led Loretta into the house first. Loretta, either being led by her father or followed by him, walked through the junk-cluttered porch. Then they walked through the sliding doors into the large family room. There was no sign of anyone else in the house, something Loretta surely wasn't expecting, because she knew her mother and Barbara never left home. No one entered Loretta's father's bedroom other than her father. That year, not even Becky, Simmons's wife of 27 years, walked into that room. 
Becky always slept with her younger children and Barbara in one of the other bedrooms. Whether he coaxed Loretta into his bedroom or forced her, Simmons got Loretta inside that room. Once she was inside, Simmons attacked her. Loretta weighed less than 90 pounds, while her father weighed more than twice that. Loretta tried to escape, but Simmons grabbed her and struck her at least twice in the face. The autopsy revealed that she had suffered cuts on her lips, consistent with being punched. Simmons grabbed her again after striking her with his fists. Loretta kept struggling as best she could, but she could not escape her father's grasp. Simmons fell face down on his bed. Loretta also fell face down, pinned between the bed and her father. Simmons grabbed a braided nylon fish stringer, possibly from his jacket pocket. That type of stringer is used for larger fish, like bass or tarpon, so it does not snap apart even with great force. Simmons wrapped the nylon line around Loretta's neck and crossed his hands, strangling her. Aside from the cuts on her mouth, there were other indications that Loretta struggled with her killer. Her watch was broken, and so was one of her earrings. She squirmed, perhaps even slashed around, trying desperately to break free. After she lay motionless, and after it seemed her heart was no longer beating, Simmons lifted Loretta off the bed. Taking no chances, he carried her into the bathroom and lowered Loretta's head into a trash barrel that was filled with water. He wanted to make absolutely certain she was not breathing. After he was sure, Simmons placed her body onto a bed in a different room. Ronald Gene Simmons would repeat those steps for his remaining three children. He'd lure them in one by one and strangle them with a nylon fishing line. And he used that barrel of water to make sure none of them were breathing before he moved on to the next one. One theory was that Simmons may have tried to lure them inside by telling them he was giving them their Christmas gifts in order to keep the children from hearing any commotion inside the house and getting suspicious. Simmons may have had them sit inside one of the parked cars on the property with the radio on. After the last victim was killed, Simmons eventually took the bodies of his children using a wheelbarrow near the woods toward the hole that his children had dug out earlier in the year. By the time Loretta, Eddie, Marianne, and Rebecca Lynn were rolled to their grave, three other bodies already lay in that hole. Simmons's killing spree had actually begun that morning, and it was still far from over. Earlier that day, the morning of December 22, 1987, shortly after the four school-aged children had boarded the Dover school bus, Simmons began rehearsing in his head the murderous steps he was about to take. He secured a 22 caliber revolver somewhere on him, perhaps tucked into his belt or in his pocket, and also grabbed a blunt instrument, possibly a lead pipe or crowbar, one that was more than two feet in length. With that gun and with that blunt object, Simmons headed down the hall. No one knows the order in which Simmons's first three victims were killed. Those first three victims were Simmons's oldest son, little Gene, his wife, Becky, and his three-year-old granddaughter, and little Gene's only child, Barbara. It's possible that Simmons targeted his oldest son first, 
because he needed to take care of the one person in his family who posed the biggest physical threat to him. Others have surmised that Becky was the first victim. According to one account, Simmons used that blunt instrument on Becky first and incapacitated her. After that, he entered Eddie's room, which was where his oldest son, 26-year-old little Gene, was sleeping. Simmons walked toward his son, who by that time was probably awakened by the commotion, and struck him twice with the same blunt object, once in the head and again in the neck. The blows did not do much to little Gene other than leave a gash or two. He got out of his bed ready to fight. The blood spatter, palm prints on the wall, and autopsy report indicated there was a struggle. Little Gene probably realized that fighting back was the only chance he had to escape that bedroom. Simmons dropped the blunt object and relied on his revolver, but even that did not have the stopping power he'd probably expected. Simmons shot his son a total of five times, four times in the head and face, and once in the chest. Two of those shots were fired with the muzzle being as close as six inches from little Gene's head. Based on the evidence, little Gene lunged toward his father after he was shot the first time, and while being shot more times, Little Gene kept crawling toward the door to the hallway, but he never made it through the door. By the time he was shot the final time, Little Gene was dead. Simmons's oldest son suffered bullet wounds to the left side of his forehead, the middle of his forehead, his face to the left of his nose, his right eye, and the left side of his chest. The autopsy report disclosed that Little Gene suffered lacerations to his face, that were the result of being dragged. The medical examiner said he could not determine which bullet wounds came first or which one was the fatal wound, but he did conclude that little Gene was dead before he was buried. That was the case with all of the buried victims. Simmons made certain all of them were dead before he placed them in the grave. That bedroom where little Gene was killed had blood all over the bed, furniture, walls, and closet door. Here is an audio sample of a video taken days later by the Pope County Sheriff's Office in which one of the lead investigators, Ray Caldwell, described what detectives had found inside that bedroom. We're in the bedroom on the uh, southwest corner, the last bedroom in the residence. And on the uh, north wall of the bedroom is partial prints in blood on a yellow-colored wall. Also on the door is blood splattered in an upperly direction. Also handprints and blood on the door and also at the bottom of the door and the ceiling in this room also is blood splattered up onto the ceiling area. After he killed little Jean, at least one theory goes, Simmons crossed the hall and headed to the room where Becky and Barbara were. Simmons used that same revolver on Becky, killing her. The autopsy report showed that she had a bullet wound to her right cheek and one to the left of her nose. She also had two deep lacerations to the back of her head, where she had been struck with a blunt object. The pillow and pillow case in the bedroom were soaked with blood. Turning his attention to Barbara, Simmons grabbed some nylon string that he had stuffed in his pocket. He wrapped it around the three-year-old girl's throat and strangled her. That was the manner of death for all of the children in the house. Strangulation. When her body was found, Barbara still had that fishing line wrapped around her neck. 
it was rapped five times. The sounds of the gunfire inside those two bedrooms were extremely loud, nearly deafening. At least one neighbor would later tell police he heard what sounded like gunshots in the distance that day, but those sounds were commonly heard in rural Arkansas. Hunters and target shooters always found a dense spot in the woods to fire their rifles and revolvers. Duck, deer, and boar hunting seasons have historically lasted through mid to late December in Arkansas, so no one's suspicions were raised enough to call the police. Simmons moved the bodies to that hole in the ground. As I mentioned earlier, the children had been the ones to dig it for him. The project took weeks. The kids did not realize what they were digging it for. Whatever their father told him the hole was for was a lie. They did what their father told them to do and it turned out to be their own grave. Later that day, after he dumped the other four bodies in the pit, Simmons brought out some kerosene and barbed wire. After he laid the first set of bodies in the grave, and again when he laid the second set of bodies in there, he soaked them with kerosene and laid barbed wire between the bodies. Here is a portion from a special news report aired in 1990 by Little Rock Station, THV11. It was hosted by Ann Jansen. In it, she describes further why Simmons used kerosene and barbed wire. His military training was evident here where the family members were killed. Some of their bodies were found in a hole in the yard. They had been doused with kerosene and covered with coils of barbed wire that had been balled up with rocks and fresh vegetation. It was a trick he learned in Vietnam designed to keep the animals away. You'll hear more from Anne later in the series. That night, after all the bodies were in the grave, Simmons covered the large hole in the ground and the bodies lying in it with dirt. Then he placed some sheet metal on top of the dirt. Simmons rarely left his property from the time the killing started December 22nd until the Russellville rampage a week later. But he did make one special trip. He selected one morning to drive to Russellville to access his newly renewed safe deposit box. He left a note in that box. The note read in part, quote, Sheila, you have lied to me, hurt me, destroyed me, and it will hurt you more than it will hurt me. I will see you in hell, end quote. In four days, Sheila would be coming to Mockingbird Hill, along with her husband and two children. The last face she would see before her death would be her father's, undoubtedly sporting that evil, mad dog grin he was known to have. Coming up on The Devil of Pope County, America's Worst Family Massacre. That was his daughter who was laying on the floor right in front of the Christmas tree there. At some point, they called me back and said, I think they're going to find some more bodies. He wanted me to be the only one that would receive these letters. The Devil of Pope County is written and hosted by Tony Holt, produced by Kyle McDaniel, and presented by the Arkansas Democrat Gazette.